Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. We're here today with Professor Yair Loberbaum, who is a member of the law faculty at Bar Ilan University, where he lectures on philosophy of law, Jewish law, and Jewish thought. Professor Loberbaum was a member of the Hartman Institute for many years and has guest lectured at many universities, currently at Columbia University. He's the author of the book In God's Image Myth, Theology, and Law in Classical Judaism, which was published in English in 2015. Professor, thanks for taking time to talk. Welcome. Great. So to jump in on this book topic, something that many of us find uh, very fascinating, um, I want to ask, what's the range of views throughout the Jewish tradition as to what the dimension of human capacity is similar to God's? Another way to ask this question is, what are, what are, what, in what way are humans created with Selim Elohim? So, you know, this idea of uh, man created in the image of God, uh, in Hebrew, uh, has a very, very long history and a very long history of interpretation. You know, it, of course, it starts at the very first chapter of the Bible, of the Tanakh. It's known as the Hebrew Bible. And then from then on, it is interpreted on and on and on within the Jewish tradition till today. Uh, it also has a very long history within the Christian tradition because, uh, you know, the letters of Paul in the New Testament also utilize this idea in its own kind of Christological way. Now, it also has a very ancient uh, history, and uh, maybe we'll, I'll say something about this later, about the, I would say, the ancient background of the biblical uh, verse. But just to say, you know, a few words about uh, the meaning of this idea, you know, one, you know, some interpretations given to it as having to do, let's say it has to do with the human intellect, some has to do with the human ability to differentiate between good and bad, some speak about the creativity, some speak about uh, the conscience, uh, some speak about all of these things together. And those who speak also about the bodily, I would say, uh, physical aspects of the idea of the uh, image of God, which seems to be part of the, uh, I would say, original meaning of this term, Tselem Elohim. After all, we have to remember that the term Tselem in Hebrew is usually also used in terms of worshiping icons and images. And according to probably the original meaning of this term, uh, human beings, rather than other images, are God's image, God's icon. And therefore, in a sense, God is present in them. And I think according to the original meaning, it has to do both with the uh, human body and the human, I 
I would say intellect and the all the I would say mental aspects of the human sex has to do with you know the humanity as a whole. Fascinating. So, um, in what ways would you say the these various rabbinic readings of Tzelem Elohim were influenced by surrounding non-Israelite cultures at the time? I would say that uh, you could speak about rabbinic, but maybe we should start with the Bible and afterwards say something uh, say something about the rabbinic literature which is a bit later. Um, when we think about the Bible, um, we know that in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, we know that uh, they use the idea of image uh, in what is known as the royal theology. Royal theology means that according to to the ancient, both theological and political view, the kings, only the kings were God's image. And this basically what, this is especially in Mesopotamia, in some parts also in Egypt, but especially in places in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, in Assyria, in other places. And according to this view, the very idea of the authority of the king has to do with his very close connection to God basically him being God's image. And he is able to reproduce himself or reprocreate by his children and so on and so forth. And his, I would say, political status is closely connected, intertwined with his theological status, which has to do with him being divine, with God being present in him. Therefore, in the ancient Near East, Basically, the worshiping of gods and their images and worshiping of king, kings and images were kind of intertwined. If you go, for example, to the British Museum, you can't really differentiate between use these huge images of both kings and gods, which seems to be almost the same. And this has to do with what one is what was known in the ancient Near East as the royal theology. Now, according to some scholars, uh, what happened in the first chapter of Genesis is what is known as the democratization of the idea of the image, which means that now it's not only kings which are the images of God, it's human beings as such. And here the idea is not that the king is the, uh, is the image alone, it has to do with the very idea of human beings that God created in own image, and therefore when they procreate and multiply, they basically multiply God's images. By the way, this of course has a, a profound impact on the political theory of the Bible, because now you can't really base the um, king's authority on him being God's image, because everybody is in God's image from now on, so you have to think about the basis for political authority somewhere else. But this is another issue which probably kind of, uh, we, we won't deviate to that now. Okay. Now, to the, if you go to the rabbinic literature, they basically took this idea and developed it in many, many ways, both theologically and also in the legal realm, in the halachic realm. And you could find it in many, many places, sometimes uh, developing biblical ideas, sometimes even using the biblical idea even against the Bible against I, biblical, I would say, tendencies. Maybe I'll say something about this in a minute. But here what is interesting is that unlike the surrounding which thought about images as being the presence of God, what, which is a very basic idea in antiquity, the idea that 
there is a kind of a isomorphism between an image and its prototype, causing the prototype to be in one way or another present in the image. And this is the basis for worshiping images all over the ancient world. In both the Bible and then in rabbinic literature, the idea is that human beings are God's image. And therefore, the presence of God is not outside them, but in many ways in them. And this basically is what makes, for example, the uh, mitzvot, the commandments of procreation, uh, so central in the uh, uh, rabbinic tradition. Some make it even the most important commandment because the idea is that you multiply God in many ways. You multiply his image and therefore you kind of expand his presence on, in the mundane, you know, in the mundane world. And what is really unique in rabbinic literature is not the concept of image, but the idea that you apply this on the relation between the divine and human beings. Fascinating. So how would you say that other faith traditions understand Salam al-Akim differently from, uh, from, these, from this wide array of Jewish uh, thought positions? And is there some unique contribution from our dominant thrust that we have to offer? I would say the, the interesting thing is that you could compare Judaism in that sense to both pagan uh, tradition, earlier pagan traditions, and uh, also to what is known as monotheistic tradition. On the one hand, you know, Christianity, and in other words, uh, Islam. Maybe I'll kind of, you know, focus more on the Christianity, uh, less on Islam. Just to say something about Islam, Islam has one of the most, I would say, abstract views of God. Namely, God is something completely different from any kind of mundane being. He is completely transcendent and therefore he's so abstract that you can't really speak about him in terms of us being images of him or anything, you know, uh, mundane being God's image because God is so sublime and so transcendent and so on and so forth. So uh, it's not that it's, I'm not saying that you can't find this idea in, in Islam, but it's really on the margins. <clears throat> but one finds this idea very central is in Christianity. And here it has to do with the, I would say, idea of, the, of Christ as being, I would say, the savior and at the same time, the image of God in which each and every believer in the, I would say, the Christian faith becomes a kind of a limb of Christ becoming part of the image which Christ himself kind of embodies in terms of, and, and this is something that you could find in the letters of Paul and then it is developed by many, many, uh, 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 I would say, uh, 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 theologians within the Christian traditions. Wait, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. So is part of what you're saying there that belief in Christ is, uh, uh, is, is required to be a part of the image of God? The belief in Christ, one aspect, main, main aspect that one could find already in the letters of Paul, which are part of the uh, uh, New Testament, and later on it was interpreted and reinterpreted by the uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, church fathers and later by theologians, the idea that Christ, he embodies the image. 
And of course, this is taken out of the uh, Jewish tradition because the Christian tradition was basically, you know, kind of uh, came out of the Jewish tradition and the whole idea of uh, uh, human beings being God's image was taken from the Jewish tradition, but then applied specifically on Christ and all the believers becomes part of the divine image through the belief in Christ, which is something uh, that one can't find in the Jewish tradition. But it's a kind of, I would say, version of what one finds both in the Bible and then in rabbinic literature. Fascinating. Very central within the Christian tradition. Very central. So it, does, is it stated in the negative as well to the extent that one who is not a believer is essentially not holding the infinite dignity of one created in that image? It depends on the interpretation given by different Christian theologians, but according to, I would say, the original meaning, what could find that one finds in some of the letters of Paul and then by, you know, early church fathers and later on, you make yourself part of the image by joining in terms of belief, uh, the, uh, I would say, the ecclesia, you, uh, you, you join the Christian faith, you put yourself under Christ, you become part of him, as being part of him, you're also part of God's image. If you're outside this kind of faith, in many, in many ways, you're outside, I would say, the, this big body of Christ, which is in itself the image of God. According to the Jewish tradition, there is a very interesting, I would say, tension between being a Jew and being a human being. There's some who stress the idea that uh, the idea of the image of God of Tzalemurim has to do with all human beings, not necessarily Jews. Some want to um, uh, emphasize the, I would say, uniqueness of Jews within the concept of the idea or the concept of the idea that human beings are created in the image of God, and you could think also about the kind of a particularistic interpretation given. Namely, one could find in rabbinic literature the following idea. Human beings, all human beings are God's image, but there are those who could imitate God in a perfect way. Uh-huh. And you do this by fulfilling the commandments. And the whole idea of fulfilling the commandments is not only being in God's image, it's namely making or perfecting the image. And you perfect the image by fulfilling the commandments. Now, the difference between Israel and the other nations is that both their starting point is their being, uh, the point of departure is all of them being God's image, but what is unique to the Israelites, to the Jews who fulfill the commandments, is that they improve the image. They perfect the image. And this is the whole purpose of, of the fulfilling of the commandments. And those who, who transgress or don't follow the commandments, they basically, uh, in a way, distort the image. Okay, so, so um, how far in that direction can we go? Can one actually lose the image? Right? Is it essential to the human being, even if it's distorted? I remember this emerging around the conversation of torture, whether a person can be tortured um, or, or killed, you know, based on the premise that they have lost their tzelem Is the dominant thrust in Jewish thought that it's essential and it can be distorted, but it's always there? 
or that it can be lost? Now here also, that's a very good question. That this is a matter of interpretation. I would say that if we concentrate on the uh, early rabbinic, formative rabbinic literature, I'm speaking about the Tanaitic and some of the Amoraic literature, they tend to think that, you know, somebody could corrupt himself, but never in such a way that he loses the image. Therefore, for example, basically deciding against the Bible, against the Torah, uh, you find, famously, you find in rabbinic literature um, uh, a kind of an opposition to capital punishment. They oppose capital punishment, and it's a well-known Mishnah find in the first uh, in the uh, in the first chapter of Tractate uh, Makot, in which um, some of the central rabbis say that if we were in the Sanhedrin, nobody would be ever ever uh, executed. Though one could find at least 28 transgressions in the Mishnah itself, which deserves capital punishment, if that would be. But they basically created a procedure in which one wouldn't be executed at all. And this basically goes against the Torah, which uh, decrees execution on many, many uh, transgressions of many, many mitzvot. And this is really a kind of, a, I would say, almost a revolution within the rabbinic literature. And if you really follow the text, you find out that it has to do with the way they proceed uh, human beings being created in God's image. The idea that uh, there is something divine in human beings which can't be really uprooted completely and therefore any killing of human beings has to do with harming God's image, even if you speak about the most, I would say, obnoxious, uh, uh, um, the most obnoxious uh, wrongdoer, transgressor. Even the, 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 the interesting example given in rabbinic literature is somebody who cursed God. Cursing God is perceived as maybe the most horrible felony one could commit. And he, even he himself is not executed. And God is really feeling sorry about him if he's executed. So this is something really paradoxical. And this basically works against, I would say, the Bible, which in a famous verse in Genesis 9, verse 7, uh, uh, gives, it explains why people should be executed because of murder, because the murder is harming God's image, and therefore you can't but execute somebody. And comes Rabbi Akiva says, if that's the case, you can't even execute the murder. So it's kind of a paradox within the idea of the image of God vis-a-vis -vis capital punishment and punishment, punishing in general. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, in the interest of time, our last two questions. Firstly, um, so if we are created in God's image, how much do our human actions have the potential to influence God according to the rabbis? Meaning, you already said quantitatively, the idea of peru urvu, the idea of fertility, uh, uh, increasing God's pre presence. But on a qualitative level, is there the potential to influence what God is based upon human thought and action? Look, the, the, one could find in rabbinic literature 
the idea that because there's kind of a causal connection between the prototype and the image and something that happens to the image could influence the prototype, one could find some clues within rabbinic literature that whatever you do has a kind of an impact on the divine. Now, if you one could find such a thing in early rabbinic literature, it becomes really developed. And uh, uh, in uh, later in Kabbalah, one could say that in the Middle Ages, starting, let's say, late 20th, 12th century, and then 13th, 14th century, kind of culminating in the Zohar, and later on in the uh, Lurianic uh, uh, literature and Kabbalah, one could find a very strong idea of, or I would say the basis of, I would say the perception both of God and humanity and the connection between, it, between them has to do with the idea of human beings being God's uh, image and the whole idea of the divine realm, which is made out of spherot, they are organized in a kind of a human shape, and this human shape is isomorphic to the human body, and whatever you do has an impact on God, and basically the whole purpose of the mitzvot has to do with perfecting God and so on and so forth. But this has to do both with your intentions and your deeds and the combination between them, and this makes maybe something very central in Kabbalah. One could find the roots of this in early rabbinic literature, and one, one, some would say even in the Bible, but it, 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 it goes a, a really very long way within Kabbalah, becoming really very, very sophisticated and very, very elaborated within, in, within Kabbalah. And this is with us still today among many, many traditional Jews. Okay, fascinating. So last question. Um, how, how, how have some used this theological position within the halachic discourse? I mean, you already talked about capital punishment, but are there other ways we see, uh, other examples of how Tzalem Elohim has been codified in Jewish law? So if we go back to rabbinic literature, uh, rabbinic, I mean, uh, early rabbinic literature, Mishnah, Midrash HaLacha, and then uh, the uh, Sugiot of the Talmud, uh, there are many, many, and one main issue in my book has to do with connecting the theology to halacha and how the theology is really embedded and uh, designs many, many particular halachot. One of them, one very important and, and, and fascinating example is the way the rabbis design, I would say, the forms of execution which means to be kind of an academic, I would say, play in the Beit Midrash, because first, they didn't have any authority to execute. Secondly, after developing all these forms of execution, they decided that finally they won't never execute because they kind of almost abolished capital punishment. But for the sake of, of uh, halakha, uh, at least in a kind of a theoretical academic way, they designed all these ways of execution, four ways, very famous four ways of execution, in such a way that wouldn't harm the human body. They would keep the body, thinking about executing, keeping the body intact. They were very innovative in the way they designed these four ways of execution. So one could ask himself, how could you burn somebody without really burning the body? So they thought about burning only the inside, keeping the outside intact, as if the image has to, has, has to 
has to has to remain perfect. Or they, for example, invented a whole new way of uh, ex execution, like uh, which is not mentioned in the Torah and in any other sources. For example, strangulation. Strangulation has to do with keeping, you know, kind of strangling through the throat, and then uh, even even avoiding any kind of, uh, I would say, scratch on the on the throat. Just to do this while keeping the body intact and so so. I don't want to go. We don't have time to go through these details. I could see it in the book, but this is. A, a real effort that they, that they are making in order to kind of implement the idea of the image in the even bodily way on, uh, on, on, uh, in, in, in a whole area of, 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 of law. And of course, we find it in uh, rules and halachot has to do with procreation, which has an impact on marriage and divorce. And this is part of the rabbinic halacha, which is based and very closely connected to the idea of man created the image of God according to rabbinic tradition. Fascinating. Okay, thank you so much, friends. Be sure to check out Professor Loberbaum's uh, books and articles. Professor, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.